3: It's Jim Kramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action.
4: Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli, Jim Cramer has the morning off. We are coming off the worst day for stocks in over a year. Got a tentative bounce as China says it's willing to coordinate with Europe on a diplomatic solution on Ukraine. Futures, though, have faded as the president will announce a U.S. ban on Russian energy later on this morning. Our roadmap begins with energy and the inflation shock. Prices at the pump hit a new record and the White House, as we said, set to ban Russian oil imports as soon as today.
0: Plus, Shell has a Russia reversal. The energy company planning to withdraw from Russian oil and gas and also apologize for buying that
2: cargo of Russian crude last week and headwinds for corporate America the CEO of snap-on tools joins this hour to talk supply chain inflation and the geopolitical risks to growth.
4: We're going to start, obviously, with the announcement we expect from the White House about 10.45 uh, this morning, as uh, the U.S. is set to ban. It's not just oil, guys. It's uh, Russian imports, uh, energy imports of all kinds, coal, uh, LNG. Uh, as Jeff Curry on, on Goldman was from Goldman was just telling uh, Becky and Joe, uh, a lot of that supply is already uh, arrested, uh, 3% of the imports overall for this country. So, in some ways, Mike, symbolic. The
2: real issue would be whether or not we could get Europe to tag along. Right. Or even if there's an immediate desire to have Europe to tag along, if this is not just sort of uh, a political gesture, kind of keeping the heat on, uh, you know, acknowledging some political pressures in this country. And the big question around the global oil market really is, you know, with this kind of de facto boycott of Russian supplies, even when they're not formally prohibited, you know, is that Largely reflected in today's price, and I think that's been the question all along. Jeff Curry of Goldman just saying, you know, his forecast of 135 for crude uh, incorporates a bad a two million uh, barrel a day, you know, high, you know, essentially that much being off the market relative to pre-crisis levels. So, uh, what we're waiting for, I think, what the equity markets are waiting for is for crude to not go up on bullish headlines. That's kind of your sign that in the short term you've gotten the price a, a long distance toward uh, reflecting a lot of these disruptions. But who knows where that number is? All right.
4: Meanwhile, uh, David, more headlines uh, from the IEA this morning that they are, again, prepared uh, to release more from the uh, global SPR. Uh, fascinating to listen to the CEO of Hess uh, tell Brian Sullivan it needs to happen now. 120 million barrels, he believes, this month and another 120 million next month.
0: Yeah, I think we may even have that. John Hess talking to, to, to Brian at the Sarah conference saying, uh, you know, and again, what you'll hear from so many oil executives, and this is a real opportunity for them to do that, that they're all committed to the transition, so to speak, the energy transition, but it is going to take a long time. And in fact, you've got to get uh, both the government and Wall Street to sort of encourage more uh, investment. And it's not just the government, but the fact that Wall Street has wanted to see returns from uh, from the oil companies that are about returning uh, cash flow to shareholders in the form of uh, higher dividends or buybacks as opposed to actually more money in the ground to increase production. Take a listen to Hess.
1: Well, both Wall Street and government officials need to realize that oil and gas are going to be needed for decades to come. Uh, And they're essential to having a smooth and affordable energy transition. The key challenge, Brian, Is investment.
0: We're not investing enough. It's unclear, guys, though, what you know what the impact will be near term, even if you were to increase investing, doesn't mean that it results
2: immediately in increased supply. Right, it's not as if production is depressed right now. No. It's just not, you know, uh, being lifted aggressively. Uh, And, you know, you could also turn this the other way and say CEOs want continued cover for Underinvesting investing and just harvesting cash flows and doing what they've now become, I think, conditioned to do. I mean, it's, it's actually been working for them, right? There's a sweet spot where prices are. They probably don't want prices up here, you know, to, to threaten to destroy demand and, and, and keep the heat on. Uh, you probably want them to come down a little bit. Right. Well, that was uh, the Devon CEO, Rick
4: Moncrief's, our criticism a few days ago yeah. uh, that they hadn't gotten cover from the White House, that the president hadn't come out and said, "Look, guys, uh, we're going to help you uh, ameliorate yeah. the relationship with your shareholders if you do start to invest less in buybacks and dividends and more on capex."
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. Um, so all of a sudden, like the oil industry, which was always about just wildcatters going out and taking risk and and thinking, if if, if John has is correct, and we're going to need oil and gas for years to come, then capitalists will go out and drill some, whether it's privately held companies or somebody else. Um, I do think it's, it's interesting, though, that you actually have CEOs saying, just give us the wink, and we'll be able to talk to our shareholders. I mean, is that true? I mean, do shareholders say, well, if the White House... Or who's going to go first? Yeah. Yeah. You first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no,
0: They're, they're probably going to say, yeah, listen, we continue to want... By the way, they are going to be generating such outsized cash flows yeah. right now that you could do both. There you go. I mean, the numbers yeah. are going to be enormous. Uh, It was $48 billion in cash flow last year for Exxon. I mean, At this point, with these kinds of prices, if they were to hold up or you'd be anywhere even near this, the numbers are going to be gigantic so that you can do both. And in fact, we did ask uh, both Mike Worth uh, and Darren Woods last week about increased return to shareholders given the current environment, which doesn't preclude also increasing uh, money for production. And or as well, if they see opportunities, uh, for increasing their efforts to um, to minimize carbon, yeah. um, but you know, guys, I think when it comes to to Europe, it's a much more difficult question than it is here in the U.S. Yeah. And I mean, even the Shell press release really sort of wraps it up. Our actions to date have been guided by continuous discussions with governments about the need to disentangle society from Russia energy flows while maintaining energy supplies. I mean, that's the problem yeah. here, not as difficult in Europe, where they rely so much more on Russian gas and oil. Much more different story.
4: Uh, and if you missed it this morning, uh, Shell apologizing for buying that load of, of Russian Ural uh, benchmark. Say they're going to stop all purchases immediately and are going to stop service stations, aviation, fuel servicing in Russia as well, as we keep an eye on the self-sanctioning there. One interesting note, we keep looking for cracks in in the momentum, the behavioral momentum of, of energy. B of A today, we are Disinclined, though, to chase spot prices higher, uh, navigating the volatility means acknowledging diminishing returns. Uh, so they cut Oxy, they cut Conoco, EOG, Diamondback to neutral. Yeah. We'll look for more calls like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's if you've been positioned in there and you feel as if we've gotten enough in the short term, we're less than three months into the year, energy's up 30-something percent. I mean, uh, it, it makes sense to, to feel as if what you're seeing now is a little bit of that momentum Uh, kind of ride along effect in the price and it's happening in other commodities right there's been all this talk of uh, of nickel if there's been if there are short squeezes and blow ups you know, across commodity portfolios. I mean, it's 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 logical to think that you've gotten to this kind of unstable phase of some of the commodity rallies. Oil's probably a different story. I mean, we are actually scrambling for physical barrels. It's not just about, you know, futures and paper profits, but um, yeah, it makes sense to say that maybe there are going to be better opportunities to, to
0: return you to this screw. Mike, let's names. move to the stock market yeah. for a minute in terms of the, the consumer names in particular seem to be getting just hammered yesterday, yeah. far more even than the overall market even though, as we pointed out, it was a particularly bad day for those who uh, for own stocks. Um, but, not, you know, names like Expedia and Hilton on the travel front, uh, other consumer names, even a U.S. foods, yeah. it, it, some of these moves were very significant to the
2: downside. Yeah, the market is really rushed to this place of saying that there's genuine budget squeeze happening or about to happen in, uh, in, in the U.S., and that we are at a point where the main issue with What's happening with energy is not so much what it's going to do the the inflation data, but it's going to be about restraining spending elsewhere. It does come into context in general, though, of I think investors feeling very pinched between. The Fed's going to do what it's going to do. We don't know how far the mark, the bond market's telling the Fed it probably doesn't have that much runway here. I mean, the flattening curve and all the rest, but there's going to be a hike in March. It's weird that it's happening with the VIX at thirty. It's weird that it's happening with credit spreads widening out the way they are, and so there's an unease about that, and so naturally it sort of filters right into, uh, you know, the consumer and the and the phase. and you know that could that who knows if that's an opportunity? There were some notes today on things like the the, the banks, the domestic centered banks saying, you know, okay, fine. Now their valuations look much more reasonable. Now it seems as if, you know, we've accounted for even a slight erosion of credit. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it was a, it's was it been a stark thing. And also some names um, that are the global consumer, like the travel names are kind of global. You look at the bookings yes. Yes. Uh, companies and all that, and then that makes a lot of sense. Well, you, you got, seeing you some got
4: three that. big travel uh, headlines this morning. One is Alaska Air, the first big airline to come yeah. out and raise their guidance on fuel costs for Q1, uh, looking for 260 to 265 a gallon prior to 245, 250. They're gonna trim some capacity in the first half. Booking holdings over the last week, our room nights down about 10% versus 19. Yeah. It, that, some of that's Russia, but a large part of it, they say is Western Europe, which does remain modestly above 2019 levels. And then United having to cut some of these flights to Mumbai and that's more of an airspace issue uh, over Russia, but uh, that happened in the middle of yesterday's session. But all of these, all the majors that have uh, large international roots.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it seems as if you know, for the last two years, it's been okay. Things seem like they're lining up well for the travel revival, for the reopening revival, uh, and and it's obviously something has gotten in the way. And this one, it's difficult to find your way around just because of the fuel costs. And take a look at something like Live of- Nation. I mean, that stock's yeah. down twenty five percent in a
0: in a heartbeat. Um, Again, back to the whole reopening. I'm not sure what it says. Are people not going to be going to concerts? Is there really that much budget problem right now for people at home? I mean, we are still talking about an economy that had a five and a half, six percent GDP print not that long ago,
2: with wage inflation significant, still obviously labor shortages. I mean, I I think it's much more about if you owned Live Nation, you own the other stuff that was positioned for consumer revival and reopening, and. There's been a defensive migration within the market. There's no doubt about it. It's just utilities outside of energy. It's utilities and staples that have been working. And, and this is these are the casualties along the way.
4: Kind of reminds me of what the JPM desk says this morning. Uh, most asked question yesterday, if we take profits in commodities, where do we go long? Right. Right. And is that going to be a defensive name? Or do you really believe 4,200 is a, a legitimate floor? Or let's say 4,000. Yeah. Right. And then you start to move into some cyclicals and, uh, and, and, and reflation trades.
2: Right. And, you know, it's difficult to see the, the, the linear path to, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense that, like, let's buy the cyclicals, even though we're worried about slowing and the yield curve's doing what it's doing. But it never it never feels right. Uh, 41 in change on the S&P 41.50, again, was the overnight futures low. Uh, that's similar to what we saw on February 24th. That was the day, you know, so we keep kind of... Pinning some significance on these numbers, and we'll see if it holds up. You
4: know, it's last night. Uh, some people pointing out that the, the drawdown on the S and P is almost exactly the median drawdown yeah. going back to 1928. Twelve and doesn't, and a half doesn't feel or that or way though. Well, it never does.
2: It never does. And in fact, I, you know, I've been pointing to 2015, 2016, that the peak to trough was about 15%. That's essentially what we've gotten to the lows in 40 at 41 and change. What do we call that in retrospect? Do we call it a bear market? It's semantics, but it was multiple months, and we're back to April levels on the S&P levels we first got to in April of last year.
4: Guys, a lot to get to this morning. It's going to be a busy one as we uh, said earlier, Russia uh, exposing some risks for US corporates. We're going to talk about that with the CEO of Snap on. I'll uh, see if this uh, moderate bounce that we got that developed overnight can hold here. Uh, futures have lost some steam uh, as we uh, as Mike says, we're dealing with semantics like the Nasdaq for example in a bear market. Back in a moment.
3: Every day
4: Welcome back. For more on the Russia-Ukraine conflict this morning, let's get to NBC News correspondent Aaron McLaughlin, who's on the ground in Ukraine. Good morning, Aaron.
6: Hey there. Good morning. Officials in the Sumy area of Ukraine have announced that a ceasefire is holding and they have been able to to evacuate a number of civilians who'd been trapped in that city, civilians as well as about a thousand foreign students. But the evacuations follow what was a bloody night in the city. Uh, Russia launched airstrikes over the city, bombs that dropped on civilian areas, according to Ukrainian uh, authorities, thousand pound bombs uh, that resulted in at least 21 civilians dying as well as two children uh, that, according to Ukrainian officials, NBC has been unable to corroborate those accounts. But I've been speaking to one woman who was in Sumy last night. She said she heard the bombs drop. She was absolutely terrified. And she says she knows civilians who've lost their homes. This, as President Zelensky continues to call for a no-fly zone to be implemented over the whole of Ukraine, noting that Russia continues to dominate the skies while it's invasion on the ground has stalled uh, he also was adamant that he is going to be holding firm that he's going nowhere demonstrating that he is staying in the capital, um and also very critical of the western response so far specifically with respect to that no-fly zone, saying that the West is responsible for the bloodshed in Ukraine. This, as people continue to flee the country, some 2 million refugees so far, according to UNHCR, in what they are calling the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Guys.
4: Aaron, thank you for that. Aaron McLaughlin of NBC News. Uh, on the ground in Ukraine. In the meantime, uh, as we talk about the geopolitical situation, supply chain, inflation risks, all facing U.S. businesses, we're joined this morning by Snap-on chairman and CEO Nick Pinchuk. Nick, welcome back. Uh, good to talk to you again. Appreciate the time. Good to see you,
3: Carl. How's it going?
4: Uh, it's been rough. I wonder if the turmoil that we spend our time uh, talking about uh, in the uh, commodity channel is, is thrown your own
3: purchasing into, into turmoil as well. Well, these are interesting times, you know, that Sourcing is a challenge, but one of the things that Snap-on, one of the advantages Snap-on has always had is we tend to make in the markets where we sell. So 80% of what we sell off the trucks here in America are made right here in America. So our supply chains are shorter. So we don't have, while we're challenged and we're on our game, or immediacy is the word, you know, we hop on the spot market to get things and so on but really we haven't been as impacted as others maybe we had all-time record in terms of sales in the fourth quarter and our margins were an all-time record one of the things that says though i think is is that for america i have i have an opinion about this is that we ought to onshore manufacturing it's one of the reasons why i'm here you know with the national association of manufacturers and standing out here because right behind me is the, our initiative to help fill the skills gap in america the gap in a in, in manufacturing, 850,000 plus jobs are open in America. So if you want to bring manufacturing on shore, immunize us against the, this, this supply chain and make it easier. It's easier it, that is easier said than done because you have to fill those gaps. And one of the problems is there's a perception gap. People still worry about manufacturing. 90% of Americans think that manufacturing is important, but only 30% want their kids to be manufacturers. Those are things, that they, they view manufacturing as, as things that other people's kids do. Well, this hmm. mobile interactive unit right behind me is a big factor in that. It's interactive and it tells them that they need great skills, cool skills. to get in there, it tells you you need teamwork. You need to be able to program. You need to be able to understand the spatial relationships around mechanical things. And it tells you that, boy, manufacturing is not dark, dumb and dirty, as some people think. It's a cool place to be that might be future-proof. You get in that, I got one other thing to say. And that the other thing is, is that manufacturing is a place where you become part of something greater than yourself. You know, I would say that the virus is something that should have told us this. When we kept buying from people, we, we bought all through the virus from Amazon or other places. We bought food. We bought toilet paper. They were all provided by manufacturers who stayed at their post and stood firm against the threat. I know. And I kept know. Our I, you know from funny. You mean, we hear complaints day.
4: all the time from office workers who uh, don't want to come in five days a week. They forget about all the first responders and factory workers who were coming in uh, five days that whole time. I do want to ask you, though. Um, sure. If you, you you mentioned orders, have you seen any sort of deterioration? Second derivative flattening out on orders from customers who might be getting a little nervous in this environment. You know, I think
3: I think the orders at our level. Remember, we deal with the people who work at the grassroots level, and throughout the COVID, they've been resilient, pretty much. We had we had some difficulty in the second quarter of two thousand twenty, where we came out in a V because because think people in factories. People in, in garages, repair garages keep buying. In fact, they're getting stronger. They came through the COVID. They were shocked in the beginning. They didn't know what to do. They figured out they could accommodate and, and deal with the problem safely. They got psychological recovery. They said, hey, I'm not gonna get shocked again, but now I'm seeing something I would call exhilaration. Almost like, I kind of think it's sort of like the, the roaring 20s after the, the, the last 100 year virus. And so we don't see that kind of thing. We came out of the fourth quarter with great momentum. Now, you've got inflation, you've got a lot of other challenges. And I think things like this, things like Creators Wanted, will help that for American manufacturing yep. and the American yep. economy Yeah, no, NAM's,
4: NAM's done great work uh, on, on talking about the, the labor issue, trying to repatriate those, those processes. But, Nick, I wonder, you know, it's one thing to get repatriated production for supply chain resilience. I'm not sure people buy the argument it's going to mean supply chain cost-effectiveness, right? I mean, US
3: born, made in the USA, does it mean cheaper as well? Yeah, that's true. It doesn't necessarily, but American workers are efficient. You know, I one of the things that makes me feel bad is when I hear people say, we can't compete with the Chinese, we can't compete with the Indians. Well, I'm telling you, I think American workers are the best workers in the world, and we have processes that keep them getting more and more and more efficient. This is what we do at Snap-on. And I think it's throughout manufacturing. So I think that's a good thing. I think also you got to look back at the situation. When people saw that we outsourced stuff and therefore maybe their wages didn't go up as much, but they were able to buy more with those wages, I don't think think Americans in general like that trade-off. They like doing things that are important. They like seeing their wages go up. They like being part of something that makes a difference, which is manufacturing. And if it costs a little more to do that, I think Americans are ready to do that.
4: Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Even some of these poll numbers were about a, a Russian oil ban. A lot of Americans would, would ha- like to have it, even if it means a few more cents at the pump. Nick Pinchuk of, S- of Snap-on. Nick, great to have you. Thanks so much today. As we count down to the opening bell, one more look here at futures. We'll get that opening bell in just about seven minutes.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
7: Energy
2: names leading the list of S&P 500 gainers once again. Solar Edge, actually, some of the solar stocks, not just uh, fossil fuel stocks participating today. Occidental, though, up another 3.2% as well uh, before the open. The opening bell is just minutes away. Google
0: agreeing to acquire a cybersecurity company, Mandiant, the price, $23 a share. That's $5.4 billion. That's inclusive of cash at Mandiant. The Alphabet Unit says the move will complement what it calls Google Cloud's existing strengths in security, and that is the key offering here. It's along with Google Cloud. Obviously, security is such an important component of that. I wanted to go back just to take a look from when it went public, just to give people an idea, Mike, that there were times when this stock was far higher. It had a terrible year in 2015-16 there. Never really recovered. Uh, And 23, you can see, and cash kind of putting an end to all that. Um, and yet Mandy and obviously very important role in the solar winds hack and identifying that
2: but has not necessarily benefited as much in the stock market from so much of the need for its services. It's a good reminder that 2014 was kind of an early little fang tech uh, mania, mini mania, uh, and cybersecurity was a key part of it. I also wondered if if cybersecurity, the individual software companies, it's like a biotech thing. They're targeted it's at a particular strain of something, and then some better mousetrap comes along. Interesting test of uh, alphabet, though, of the M&A environment. Yeah, and, and on that point,
0: Carl, we talk often about how the biggest tech companies may be precluded from doing any buying. Well, I guess they haven't gotten that memo yet. We'll see in terms of the antitrust review. Yeah, a lot of
4: discussion. If MGM and Activision happens, would they be a little more bold in making some bids at these valuations? There's the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange. And the big board, it's BNY Mellon celebrating International Women's Day at the NASDAQ. United Nations women ringing the bell for gender equality. So we're going to open up with at least one green arrow, Mike.
2: Right at 4,200 there, as yeah. we spent a few days hanging around 4,300. Yeah, 4,200, it was a little bit sticky yesterday. I tell you, it was uh, as, as bad as it was in terms of point-to-point declines. It was very just kind of drip, drip, oppressive. Heavy volumes are starting to come out. You're seeing it teams just people just reducing equity exposures. Came in heavy uh, in stocks coming into the year, and that's been working in reverse. A lot of commentary, like, oh, we haven't really seen anything climactic. We haven't seen uh, a real concentrated dose of liquidity that you sometimes see it. Look, you don't always have it line up, but that's that's definitely been true. I've been wondering if 4,200, as I said, above the the intraday or overnight lows from uh, a week ago, Thursday, I guess it was, uh, and yet crude's up 30% in that period. Um, And is it interesting or significant that Treasury yields are up again and they've not buckled and the long-term yields have not kind of surrendered their uptrend, even though the curve is flattening, and even though it might be happening because people are nervous about the Fed. So it's a, it's a complicated mix that's not just pure textbook risk off action.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, JP Morgan's point yesterday was that look, Russia is not a big part of the global economy, they're not a big credit risk per se. It's largely a binary trade on commodities, right? And in their view, you'd have to see a much bigger escalation from here to make things much worse. I think
2: economically, that absolutely holds up in terms of trying to sequester it in a place uh, in terms of its impact. Look, I I think you have to be attentive to the stresses that are evident in the overnight funding markets and just kind of the frictions now that are showing up in the banking system. I don't think it really rises to the level of saying anyone's in trouble. It's just kind of a a risk aversion. It's a rush for immediate dollars as opposed to, you know, three-month money and all these things that, you know, we we monitor. And look, every 5% pullback in the S&P we had last year, you go down the checklist and you say, is credit acting up? No. We're fine there. Um, has sentiment reset a little bit? It's no longer over-optimistic? Yes, we're fine there. And now it just seems as if the, the, the burden of proof is a little more on the bulls to prove that this is, uh, you know, this kind of a contained correction, as you said, well within the normal zone for an intra-year uh, pullback.
0: Um, the European banks have been taking it particularly right. hard, as have the European indexes led by the DAX, which is down about 15% for the month, uh, far more than our own S&P, of course. But it's the banks there that I think, Mike, there's a lot more concern about whether it's well justified or not. Again, their exposure to the Russian economy seems to be somewhat minimal. There are others who are worrying perhaps about margin to oligarchs and what that's gonna mean if in fact so many of their assets are significantly impaired. Just take a look at the DAX though, which is having a rare update right now, Uh, but you can see what's happened over just the course of the last couple of months. Uh, very significant. Not as though a lot of U.S. investors don't own uh, yeah. indexes and ETFs tied to those uh, to those uh, European markets.
2: 100 percent. And you know, and just on top of all that, what this situation has done to any expectation about the ECB raising rates? Massive divergence now in terms of expectations. The Fed, you know, going to go ahead with some rate hikes, and you're seeing the spread between U.S. yields and German yields really widen out again for that reason. Uh, you know, German yields back into negative territory, uh, and all that, just because. Because, you know, what was going to be a pretty good, uh, you know, at least a runway toward ECB tightening down the road It was going to be good for banks uh, and and positive yields would have been good for banks. That's that's Yeah,
4: It's going to be interesting. Uh, Some headlines this morning from some German officials on what we expect to hear more about, and that is a plan to reduce dependence on Russian energy by 80 percent by the end of this year and fully uh, independent by 2030 ahead of plan. This may be a a joint bond uh, issue to help fund not just energy security, but defense, as the picture's changed to a large degree in Europe, which the FT this morning uh, quotes some money managers saying probably already in recession at this point.
2: Right. Yeah, uh, almost certainly. But yeah, I mean, a huge shift in terms of the fiscal appetites, if nothing else. We'll see if that longer term, um, you know, can help things out in terms of the uh, nominal growth picture uh, for the uh, for the European economy. I mean, the, you know, if this ends up being a catalyst to, to have, uh, you know, less dependence on Russian energy overall, who knows, maybe it's a it's a good thing. Really wide gap, though, between those who feel as if this is a concentrated short-term crisis to get through and those who are saying the new normal in some respects is here. Uh, it's, it's tough to One might
0: might think that higher uh, prices at the pump would lead more people to consider an electric vehicle. Uh, Although at the same time, the costs for the commodities that go into that vehicle are probably going to raise the price over some period of time significantly, not to nickel but and others.
4: Morgan Stanley today says nickel probably added a thousand bucks to the cost of an EV. Absolutely. Uh, And you know, I do know GM
0: shares are up, Ford is up. Uh, Rivian, though, has been just getting crushed lately. It's not necessarily because of cost as much as it's concerned about production and perhaps any number of other things, including the stock soaring last year. But that stock now down 61% this year, uh, RIV, and you see it there below. And that's 41. a company
2: that said they were going to raise the price yes. on those people who had put orders in for vehicles and then had to roll it back because of the outcry. Right. So. Um, Interesting. Sorry, Carl.
4: I was going to say, your your point, Mike, about a new normal in energy in Eastern Europe specifically is what leads Jeffries to upgrade CAT uh, today. Turmoil fundamentally reshapes global commodity markets. Uh, After years of underinvestment, supply diversification will be necessary in mining and gas. And agriculture as well. And not only do they go to buy, they go to, what's their target? What uh, 260. They were at 215. 30%
2: 30% upside from yeah. here, basically. Um, yeah, and, it, you know, Cat was, I think, one of uh, one of four Dow stocks that were up yesterday, and the other three were, you know, pure defensive, you know, J&J and, and, and the like. So, uh, yeah, no, it uh, it is interesting that uh, there's at least an investment cycle attached to what's going on in commodities, whether that ends up being, you know, a productive one with high returns or not, it's, it's going to probably uh, happen.
0: Continuing to keep uh, uh, tabs on US based companies and global companies as well. We talked about Shell, but uh, other companies uh, that are making decisions about how to continue or whether to continue to do business in Russia. It's a fascinating uh, group of uh, of different. Things that they have to consider before obviously uh, choosing to exit the company entirely. Easy for some companies, much harder for others. You heard Jeffrey Sonnefeld yesterday, perhaps on our air from Yale, saying in his opinion everybody should basically uh, pull out. I want to uh, let people know Yum this morning, pausing its investment and development in Russia. Uh, it does have a thousand KFCs and 50 Pizza Hut locations. All of them are operated as franchisees, uh, pretty much almost all of them. So that does give you a sense there in terms of their level of control. But um, they aren't going to actually pull out. What they are going to do is um, they are going to redirect all profits from their operations in Russia to humanitarian efforts, and they will suspend all investment and restaurant development. In Russia. So that's what young's doing. Carl, I don't think we've heard anything from McDonald's as of yet, but I might be mistaken. No, I'm,
4: although I, I'm, I know their phone is ringing off the hook, it does remind me of Danone. Uh, which said they are also suspending investments in Russia, but they will continue to sell
2: dairy and baby food. Procter & Gamble said the same thing yesterday. Uh, So this seems to be the mode for if you're a consumer staples company, uh, you know, you provide necessities into a market for a long time. And I I just find it fascinating that companies of this type feel the pressure to do that. That's, I mean, It's, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's yet another pressure that CEOs are aware of or
0: leaders of these organizations are aware of in terms of both their customers and their employees imploring them to do something uh, and perhaps considering severing all ties. By the way, on that note, I would say Estee Lauder. Uh, Business investments and initiatives uh, have been suspended in Russia. Last week, they've also now decided to suspend all commercial activity in Russia, including closing every store they own and operate, as well as their brand sites and shipments to any of their retailers in Russia. So fairly significant move there from Estee Lauder um, in terms of their business in Russia.
4: Uh, reminds me, Goldman had a note, uh, a screen of, uh, oh no, it's J.P. Morgan, uh, U.S. stocks that we would comment, that we would mention uh, frequently with exposure to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Philip Morris is obviously the one you'd probably think of the first, uh, but Pepsi's in there, then McDonald's, then Carnival and Mondelez. Kimberly Clark, as you said, a lot of consumer products.
2: Yeah, and have been there for decades, no doubt. So, it, you know, I, I do think, you know, this is maybe not the moment when people realize, you know, figure out if there was a... An overreaction? If this is going to be the new mode, if, if there's some kind of uh, you know public outrage about some regime in the in the world, are we going to just demand immediate disinvestment? Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, you know I think it was Baird who basically went more neutral on Bank of America from uh, from the equivalent of a sell rating, basically saying valuations have come down into line. Looking better risk reward for that reason. Bank of America up about, you know, eight tenths of a percent this morning. The banks in general are getting just a little bit of relief. Uh, and if you look back at where they're trading, essentially the big banks on a price to book value basis are back to their five year average. You know, so they look like they've they've kind of taken some of the premium out. But it just I think shows you how people got overexcited coming into the year that it was going to be uh, the place to be and yields are not Fully cooperating there, but you know, credit still seems okay. So it just seems like a more balanced trade. And I mentioned earlier the 2015-2016 period, just as a very rough comp in certain respects for what's going on now. We always think about that, uh, the so-called diamond bottom, and when uh, when Jamie Diamond went out and bought uh JP Morgan shares, that was when JPM was at about book value, uh, just at a slight discount, as a matter of fact, at the low. And right now it's about at one and a half times. So it's a reminder that the overall market. Is down a bunch in a short period of time, but it gotten expensive enough that it doesn't seem as if you're, you're, you're talking about real cheap pockets just yet. Well, David did
4: ask Jane Fraser about what was it, is it 75% of book value? Oh right yeah, City's the 75% big
0: ladder, yeah. percent of tangible oh. book value, yeah, yeah it's City, uh, which is also up today along with the other banks, but it's not had a particularly good move since the company's investor day last week. Um, some investors saying you're taking too long to get to your target of uh, 10 to 12% ROTC, others saying they still think it's not reachable right. uh, over time. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be monitoring that and checking in hopefully over time as well with the efforts being made there at Citi. But especially given their place as the global bank, at least here in the U.S., the sort of with the most outreach and the most exposure to Russia, that's, those shares have suffered more than the overall group.
1: Uh, That said, we
4: do have a handful of uh, bullish calls this morning. Uh, Evercore ups Dell uh, uh, to outperform on about 20% upside in their view. Okta, Mizuho, ups, uh, says the stock at this point is too difficult to ignore as we take a look at some of these beaten down uh, technology names. DISH, uh, UBS, uh, David, says their spectrum holdings are undervalued. That's up about 3% today. And then we mentioned Caterpillar. But that's always coupled with um, another, for example, Mike uh, price target cut at Nike. Yeah, over a Cowan. Yeah, we Nike, look at Eastern European leverage.
2: Yeah, obviously, and, and really, the, this is a, a target cut. You know, the, they cut the target by about 50 bucks, uh, and the stock's down 50 bucks from the high. So it's just kind of chasing the stock lower. And you know, it's been a remarkable thing if you look at stocks like Nike and, to a degree, things like Starbucks, uh, where over over the course of the pandemic, people just kind of decided. You can own the global winners in these in these you know categories, and a lot of that's come out of Nike. So if you look at a two-year chart of Nike, it's it's kind of back to where it was before that big uh, that big lift. And clearly, there's there's going to be some uh, some demand effects here, and and, and you know, uh, European market likely recession is not going to be shrugged off. But uh, you know, the stock is also you know what is it thirty percent off its high. Yeah. So. Um, um, Apple,
4: of course, has a product event today. Uh, we're going to try to mention it as much as we can. It's spent only a handful of days this year where it's traded below 160, where it is uh, today. But we'll pay attention, Mike, to what we think will be a lower-cost uh, iPhone SE and then whatever other surprises they want to throw at us.
2: Yeah, I think you know the interesting thing about Apple is how it's, almost alone in in really acting as a haven in this whole NASDAQ sell-off. Now, it's down, you know, 12 13% from its high, but it's it's vastly outperforming, and it's it's the balance sheet, and it's the predictability, and, uh, you know, serving that purpose, the kind of essentially unlimited capital to do shareholder return uh, of capital and things like that. So I think it's interesting to see if it continues that way or if you have to have one of those downturns in the market where, you know, no... Yeah. No. Nobody's left uh, unharmed. Before we
0: came into this period, we were obviously dealing with the significant decline in higher multiple, lower profit, but perhaps high multiple revenue stocks, and just general growth being thrown out because of the Fed and what was going on. Now we're sort of thrown into the energy world and then worrying about inflation and also the recessionary impacts. Yeah. I don't know. But do we get back to worrying about some of these? Taxes? Well, I think it's <laughs> happening
2: simultaneously right. in a sense. Um, I mean, Meta hasn't really been able to gather itself and, and recover a lot of those losses. Um, you know, it, it essentially is. It's hap- and I think that's why the market has been so treacherous is that it's not just one thing going on right Um, so it's 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 the fed it's the valuation adjustment and it's obviously what's happening in you know ukrainian energy
4: uh, we did open uh, close to forty one ninety, which on an intraday basis would be the lowest since that
1: day in February, where we got to forty one fourteen. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Morning, Bob. Good morning, guys. Uh, it's hard to hold a rally. You know, we had nice move up in Caterpillar, a uh, nice move up in the oil stocks. Chevron's doing well, and yet the card companies, Visa, Amex, holding back the Dow again. So it's really tough to get a rally going. One thing that's interesting: metals may be starting to top out. The XME. This is. Uh, materials names, the metal stocks uh, ETF has been uh, just and a rocket ship, and yet it topped out yesterday morning and has turned around. Take a look at the sectors uh, that are moving here. Uh, New high, it was up yesterday. Today, down about 2%. That's very interesting. Uh, Energy still holding up well. The new high list is basically littered with uh, energy stocks, banks, industrials. Uh, Tech modestly to the upside. Two groups having trouble, consumer discretionary and some of the retailers uh, and semiconductors uh, have had problems for the last several weeks. Uh, We talked about some of this crazy action in nickel The LME nickel market still remains closed, but nickel stocks remain trading. Now, the one exception is the biggest nickel producer in the world, which is North Nickel, which is not trading because they trade over in Moscow. That's been closed since February 24th or so. But other big nickel producers are out there. And you look at some of these moves that we've been seeing here, uh, Vali, Glencore, BHP Group, Anglo-American. These are all big Global commodity producers that also produce nickel, and you see the moves up there uh, since February 24th, uh, when the, the when the, a lot of these uh, hostilities started. Uh, elsewhere, if you look at the ETF for the big metals, uh, DBB is the one you want to look at here. This actually trades aluminum, copper, and zinc futures together, uh, and you see the big move up there. That's about 15% since February 24th, and you see that turn down. That's yesterday. So the, oh, there's little. It's starting to look a little bit toppy here. I have no idea. If it is, but the market now is uh, not as enamored as it was just two days ago. Uh, I've been talking about the barbell stock market. Uh, there is uh a real differences depending on what sector you look at. The average stock in 2022, believe it or not, is only down eight percent. That's the average in the S P five hundred Uh we have new highs though across the board in energy stocks and material stocks. At the same time, we have new lows in all the travel names, we have new lows in select retailers like uh TJX, Raw stores, uh Tapestry. Uh there's obviously some concerns here that five dollar gallon uh... uh... gasoline is going to be here through the summer and some select industrials yesterday like uh, general electric for example uh... so very much a barbell stock market here one of the reasons the s p isn't looking as bad as it actually feels like it, is big techs held up relatively well. So Amazon is uh, 17% down. That was a new low yesterday. Microsoft's only down 7%. Uh, that's a type which should say um, um, Microsoft down uh, uh, 6%. Alphabet down 12%, and uh, Apple down 10% there. So not as much of a decline in the big tech sector as you might anticipate. What we have seen is a multiple contraction versus all of the 14% decline in the S&P we have seen This year is because the multiple has contracted from about 22 to about 18.7. What we're going to see now, what the market's afraid of, is earnings numbers are going to come down. Analysts are notoriously difficult, Carl, and you know this, to make moves in their stocks at the inflection point. And what we're going to see now is very modest declines in earnings so far. Carl, I think you're going to see that number, that 6.2%, come down rather quickly in the next several days. Analysts play catch-up. Carl, back to you. All
4: right, Bob. We'll watch for that, Uh, Bob Bassani. Before we go to break, let's uh, take a look at the bond report, see how treasuries are faring ahead of the one big eco-data print of the week. That's going to be CPI coming up on Thursday, which, no surprise, many expect to be hot. In the meantime, back above 4,200 by just a few points, and oil just south of 127. Watching crypto today, often uh, trading in line with risk assets, at least in the a recent uh, past Bitcoin up three percent, back above uh, 38, almost to 39k. We'll keep an eye on crypto policy today as well, as we are basically treading some water here in the early going. Dow's up eight. As we mentioned earlier, booking holdings out with some new numbers on room occupancy taking a hit due to the unrest in Ukraine. Sima Modi has more. Good morning, Sima.
7: Good morning, Carl. That's right, the world's largest travel platform booking holdings disclosing some new numbers this morning. Room nights falling 10% over the last week compared to 2019 levels. Primarily driven by Eastern Europe, Russia, and to a lesser extent, Western Europe, which still remains modestly above 2019 levels. This is Booking Holdings trying to convey to Wall Street that the impact of this crisis on travel is confined to a specific region. It follows, of course, a sharp drop in shares of Booking Holdings, down about 24% since Russia's invasion began. And it adds to comments made by Marriott CEO Tony Capuano yesterday addressing the impact of geopolitics on travel. At- a JP Morgan lodging conference saying bookings to Europe are strong and that just in the last few days they've seen a modest uptick in cancellations. Uh, other executives I've been speaking to, including John Board, CEO of Pebblebrook, a large hotel REIT, says the broader recovery remains intact as COVID cases drop. Demand, especially in the U.S., he says, it continues to accelerate. On Thursday, we will get a fresh read on U.S. hotel occupancy. That is a key metric that Wall Street keeps an eye on. Meantime, we're looking at the European travel stocks. They've been under pressure over the last few weeks, similar to the U.S. travel stocks. You'll see they're uh, rebounding today. TUI, IHG, among others, Ryanair, up about 3%. Carl, back to you.
4: All right, Seema, we'll keep an eye on a lot of those names this morning. Still to come, in fact, the president is set to deliver remarks and expected to announce a ban on Russian oil imports in the next hour as Goldman hikes their year-end forecast by 10 bucks to 135 says
3: there's upside risk to $175. you have been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
5: Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can
6: make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.